How much would you pay for a painting? Something to hang in your living room for decoration. Think of a number. Got it? Okay. Now, how much would you pay for a painting by Picasso? If you're like me, the question makes your mind go blank because the idea of owning a Picasso is so far-fetched. But for some people, it's a reality. In November 2019, a Canadian auction house is buzzing with excitement. Rows of seats are filled with the kind of people who can actually bid on a Picasso, which is exactly what they're doing. Seven million, eight million, nine million, nine million one hundred thousand sold to an anonymous buyer. According to the art dealer, this is a fair price. What is a painting worth? Whatever people are willing to pay for it. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're taking an action-packed trip to Montreal, Quebec. In 1972, the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts was ransacked by a trio of thieves, who made off with millions of dollars in paintings and antiques. It was the largest art heist the country had ever seen, and the case stayed cold for decades. Until an enterprising detective known as Canada's Columbo of Art decided to step in. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Kathleen Goltar, and I'm the host of a new podcast, Crime Story. Every week, we bring you a different crime, told by the storyteller who knows it best. You got one witness who can't be found. You got another witness who's murdered. We couldn't sugarcoat the story. I was getting calls from Cosby's attorney threatening to sue every day. Every crime in one way or another is a reflection of who we are as a people, as a city, as a country. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. The Montreal Museum of Fine Arts is the oldest art museum in Canada. Tourists come to behold masterpieces. Students walk the halls studying centuries-old brushstrokes. It houses all kinds of treasures, antique jewelry, historical artifacts, and paintings from the likes of Picasso and Rembrandt. And a little over 50 years ago, a group of thieves broke in and made off with some of these invaluable pieces. This is how it all went down. 
It's midnight on September 4th, 1972. The streets of Montreal are dark and quiet. The Museum of Fine Arts, with its stone pillars and locked doors, looks like a fortress. But out back, there are three men in ski masks who know how to get inside. One of the men has picks on his shoes, anchors that help him scale a nearby tree. When he gets to the top, he jumps onto the roof of the museum. There's a ladder there left behind by construction workers. He lowers it to his partners in crime. The other two men climb up and meet him. Together, they creep across the roof towards a skylight. Not just any skylight, the one that's under repair, the one that's been left wide open, the one with an alarm that's been disabled. The men drop a rope through its opening. One by one, they slide down the rope and onto the museum's second floor. Inside, it's quiet. Still, the men creep through the marble halls until suddenly, they hear footsteps heading in their direction. An overnight security guard rounds the corner. The thieves panic, scramble to gain control of the situation. They order the guard to get on the ground. Apparently, he doesn't move fast enough because one of the masked men raises a sawed-off shotgun into the air and fires two warning shots. Two other security guards in another part of the museum hear the shots. They run towards the sound and straight into the intruders. It's three against three, but the unarmed guards are subdued. The thieves tie them up and gag them. None of the guards gets a good look at their attackers. All they can tell is... The men are wearing ski masks and have long hair. They hear two of them speaking in French and the other in English. One of the intruders keeps watch while the other two sprint into the galleries. They pull centuries-old artworks off the walls. Paintings from Rembrandt, Bruegel, Delacroix. They rip a Picasso right out of its frame. It's not just canvases they're after. They gather precious jewelry, filling their pockets with diamonds and gold. In half an hour, they nab 39 artifacts and 38 paintings. Then, all three thieves sprint back to the second floor. There, they use the rope to rig up an improvised pulley system. The idea is to get back on the roof and lift the paintings through the skylight. But it's dark, and the pulley system is complicated. It's taking too long. They need a different way out. They know there's a truck in the museum's garage. So, new plan. They'll stack their loot inside the truck and drive away. They just need to get the key. They run back downstairs, where the three guards are still tied up. One thief searches the captive's pockets and... It's his lucky day, he finds the key. They hurry to a door that leads into the garage, but just as it cracks open, a security alarm blares. The men's hearts pound. This was not part of the plan. They need to run, now. So they take what they can carry, all 39 artifacts, but only 18 of the paintings. They run out a side door and sprint down the street. About 30 minutes later, a guard wriggles out of his bindings and frees his co-workers. 
Then one of them calls Bill Banty, the museum's PR director. Banty says to call the police and promises he'll be there soon. Officers arrive around 3 a.m. They find the museum in shambles, littered with broken frames and shattered glass. They ask the security guards to describe the thieves, but like I said, they didn't get a good look. All they can tell authorities is that there were three long-haired men, two of them spoke French, the other English. It's not much to go on, and after searching the building, police don't find anything else that's useful. Meanwhile, Bill Banty shows up, along with one of the museum's curators. They take stock of everything that's been stolen. In all, they estimate the thieves made off with about $2 million of paintings and jewelry. The most valuable piece, Rembrandt's Landscape with Cottages, is worth a million dollars on its own. The landscape was painted over 350 years ago in 1654. Artworks that old are unimaginably delicate. Wherever the thieves have taken it, museum staff are worried it might already be damaged beyond repair. They're even more terrified they might never get it back. Their concern is well warranted. Art theft is notoriously difficult to solve, and most stolen pieces are never recovered. Even the FBI's Art Crimes Unit, which you'd assume would be one of the best investigative agencies out there, has an art recovery rate of less than 10%. The numbers just aren't on their side. But that doesn't mean the police aren't going to try. They notify Interpol, the Canadian Art Dealers Association, and the International Art Registry, passing along names and photos of the stolen pieces. They also contact all points along the U.S.-Canada border. If the thieves try to smuggle the art out of the country, law enforcement hopes to stop them in their tracks. Later that day, Bill Banty holds a press conference. He gives descriptions of all the missing items. The next morning, this same information is published in newspapers across Canada and the United States. Soon, people all over North America are asking... Who were those masked robbers? Where did they take the art? And why did they steal it in the first place? A few days later, museum director David Carter gets a call that might answer those questions. Montreal Museum of Fine Arts director David Carter answers his ringing phone. On the other end, a man with a nasally voice and a European accent claims to be one of the robbers who ransacked the museum a few nights before. He gives David a list of instructions. Leave the museum. Make multiple stops at various payphones around the city. Eventually, go to the McGill University campus and call a number from a payphone there. David does as he's told. Once he's at the university payphone, the man tells David to go to the stairs of a nearby building. There will be a cigarette box on one of the steps. David should look inside. 
Again, David does as he's told. He walks to the stairs, sees the box, opens it, and finds one of the items stolen from the museum, a small pendant. The whole thing is pretty cloak and dagger, but it's also a relief. It proves the masked men still have the art in their possession, which means there's hope it could be returned. It's not the last glimmer of hope either. Soon, David receives a brown paper envelope in the mail labeled Port of Montreal. Inside are photographs of all the art the thieves stole. In the week after the heist, Museum officials keep getting calls and letters from the thieves. None of the phone conversations last long enough for police to trace, and presumably none of the letters have fingerprints or handwriting that can be linked to a suspect. But the police aren't totally directionless. They keep thinking about how the thieves got into the museum through the skylight. It wouldn't take a criminal genius to realize that particular skylight was under repair. The construction had been going on for a while, and it was public. Anyone who passed by would have seen crews working on the roof. But it's curious that the thieves knew the alarm attached to the skylight was also disabled. It makes investigators wonder if the heist was an inside job. this makes sense, statistically speaking. Art theft expert Anthony Amore says an estimated 90% of these kind of burglaries involve inside knowledge. So officers question the construction workers and look into museum employees. Nothing comes of it. It doesn't seem like anyone knowingly helped the thieves. But maybe they accidentally helped them. Authorities wonder if the masked men overheard people talking about the skylight repair and the disabled alarm. If that's true, the thieves had to have been around the museum often enough to catch wind of those details. Following this line of thought, police identify five people they think look like pretty good suspects. A group of French-Canadian college students from Montreal's École des Beaux-Arts. Now, their suspicions might also have something to do with the fact that some of the thieves spoke French, but there's another dimension to this, too. At the time, there's tension between French Canadians and English-speaking Canadians. Some French Canadians are even campaigning for Quebec to secede from Canada and become its own country. Most of the admin and staff at the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts speak English, and apparently... That group of five French-Canadian art students had felt disrespected by them in the past. One source claims museum employees would kick them out every afternoon, long before closing time. So these students theoretically have both opportunity and motive. They visit the museum often enough to have overheard conversations about the skylight and alarm. And... If they really did have a bad relationship with staff, they might have committed the heist as a way to get back at them or to make a statement. Officers surveil the students for 15 days, but it doesn't seem to get them anywhere because no arrests are made. By this point, everyone's desperate. 
One of the museum's insurance companies has already offered a $50,000 reward for information leading to the thieves' arrests and return of the stolen art. But then, they realize the culprits want much more than that. Museum officials are still getting intermittent calls and letters from the thieves. At first, it seemed like the masked men were just trying to prove they still had the stolen pieces. But eventually, they demand a ransom of $500,000. When the museum won't give in, they lower their price to $250,000. Director David Carter appears willing to pay, but he wants further proof the trio still has every piece they stole. They give it to him. Another series of covert calls direct David to embark on a second treasure hunt of sorts, this time to a locker in a train station. There, he finds a nearly 400-year-old painting attributed to Flemish artist Jan Bruegel the Elder, yet another piece looted from the museum. It's enough for museum and insurance officials to start tentative negotiations. Sometime in October, they work out a plan with the thieves, a sort of test run to exchange a single painting for just $5,000. An insurance adjuster will go to a field just outside Montreal to meet the masked men and make the trade. The location was chosen because it's not in the Montreal Police Department's jurisdiction and the thieves don't want authorities involved. The thing is... They don't know the insurance adjuster they're meeting with is actually an undercover cop. When the day comes, the officer dons a disguise and shows up at the meeting point with $5,000 in his pocket. The thieves aren't actually in sight. Chances are they're watching from a distance, making sure everything's on the up and up. That's when there's a snag in the plan a police car drives by. Apparently, no one told the local police department about the meetup, and an officer accidentally passes the field at the worst possible time. The thieves see the car and don't show up to the meeting. Later, they call director David Carter and say they saw through the trap. After this, they stop contacting the museum altogether. With that line of communication now closed, detectives know they need to look elsewhere for leads. At some point, they search for other burglaries around Montreal, maybe hoping to find a connection. And they make a very interesting discovery. The Montreal Museum of Fine Arts might have been the thieves' second stop. Less than a week before the robbery at the museum, a wealthy art collector named Agnes Meldrum had multiple pieces stolen from her home. Agnes's house sits on a bluff by a small lake about 20 miles outside of Montreal. And on the night of August 30th, 1972, three men took a motorboat to the cliff by her home, scaled its 600-foot incline, and broke in. Agnes hid while they made off with $50,000 worth of paintings from her personal collection. When she described the thieves to police, she said, 
They all wore ski masks. Two of them spoke French, the other English. Police can't be 100% sure these are the same people, but it seems pretty likely, right? Two art thefts within a week of each other, 20 miles apart, both committed by a masked multilingual trio. On one hand, this doesn't actually get detectives closer to the culprits. And there's no physical evidence at Agnes's house. None of her paintings have been recovered, and there's no information about her receiving ransom calls. But on the other hand, it does give police a better idea of who they're dealing with. Your average art student's aren't pulling off this kind of operation. The cryptic messages, ransom demands, and the fact that there could be multiple related thefts, it smells like organized crime. Now, we already know finding stolen art is very, very difficult, but if the mafia gets a hold of it, chances of recovery go from low to practically zero. These types of criminal networks move fast and often have international connections. The paintings could be anywhere on Earth by now. Unsure if any more art will be returned, insurance companies pay out a total of $1,945,300 to the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. That means if the pieces are ever recovered, they'll technically belong to the insurance companies but the museum will get the first option to buy them back. The case stays open for a decade with no movement. It's cold for another 10 years after that. Then, in 1992, an eccentric new detective enters the fray. In 1992, Alain Le Coursiere is working as a fraud investigator with the Montreal police. He's great at his job. At 32 years old, he leads an entire team of detectives. But he's not happy. The day-to-day -day grind is wearing him down. So he takes a much-needed two-week vacation to Paris, where he visits the Musée d'Orsay and the Louvre. Walking through the museum's halls reminds him of the love of art he had as a teenager. It's like an awakening for him. This break from paperwork and reports gives him time to reconnect with emotion, adventure, everything that's represented in these brushstrokes he's so moved by. He returns to Montreal reinvigorated, looking for a way to merge his artistic sensibilities with his investigative talent. He enrolls in an art history night course at a local university and starts researching the world of art crimes. It doesn't take long for Le Corsier to realize art investigation is a very niche specialty. At the time, Montreal doesn't have a single officer who's solely dedicated to art theft, even though it's a significant issue in the city. Montreal is the second largest art market in Canada, and as we've seen, criminals target both public museums and private collections. So Le Corsiere does something unorthodox. He goes behind his superiors' backs and contacts the FBI Art Crimes Unit, asking if they have any open cases with possible connections in Canada. Turns out, they do. 
They send him some files, including a photo of a stolen tapestry, estimated to be worth $200,000. Le Corsier scans through catalogs from local auction houses so he gets a good idea of what's being sold, where, and for how much. That's how he finds that same tapestry for sale at an auction in Montreal. Le Corsier shows up at the auction. He throws his hat into the ring, even as the price for the tapestry rises. He bids $195,000 and wins. But Le Corsier doesn't have that money. All he has is a Montreal police badge. And when he flashes his ID and says he believes the tapestry was stolen, the dealer hands it over. Le Corsier ships it to the FBI office in New York City, and the Bureau confirms it's the tapestry they've been looking for. It's a big moment for Le Corsier. This is his first art theft case, and he didn't just solve it. He recovered the missing item, which, like I said earlier, happens less than 10% of the time. When the FBI asks what they can do to repay him, the Corsier requests that they send a letter to his boss saying that art investigation is a valuable pursuit. The Bureau does. They also send a letter to the mayor of Montreal who congratulates Le Corsier and, by extension, the whole department on his work. From this point onward, Le Corsier cements himself as the most talented art investigator in Quebec, if not all of Canada. Basically, he created his own dream job. On top of keeping up with local auctions, Le Corsier gets email addresses and phone numbers from everyone he meets in the art community. Dealers, collectors, museum staff. He eventually develops an extensive contact list full of people with connections to the art world. That's how he meets a man known as Smith. One day in 1998, Le Corsier is introduced to Smith. He's an art collector, but Le Corsier thinks there's something off about him. Apparently, Smith was a student at Montreal's École des Beaux-Arts in 1972. That's the same school those five students went to, the ones the police surveilled. It's also the same year as the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts Robbery, which some now refer to as the Skylight Heist or Skylight Caper. Le Corsier was just a kid back in 72, but he knows all about the robbery. It's the biggest art heist in Canadian history. You'd imagine it's one of those legendary cases Le Corsier dreams of solving. Now, Smith swears he isn't one of the people the police looked into, but Le Corsier doesn't believe that. He thinks Smith is suspicious. For one thing, he tells Le Corsier the rope the thieves used was yellow, but no details about the color of the rope were ever made public. Seeing as the thieves took it with them when they ran, it doesn't seem like police even know what it looked like. The Corsier also learns Smith bought a house and opened a business the year after he graduated college. Altogether, it cost him about $250,000. And Smith can't explain how, as a 20-something fresh out of art school, he got those funds. 
It could be a coincidence, but Le Corsier thinks it's a breakthrough. It's not. Le Corsier's suspicion against Smith eventually fades. He decides it's possible Smith's money came from somewhere else and that the information he had about the heist could have been from newspaper articles or rumors. But still, the encounter with Smith gives Le Corsier a new and very lofty goal. Solve the Skylight heist. And, I mean, if there's anyone who can do it, it's him. See, by this point, Le Corsier is famous. He's given himself the nickname Canada's Columbo of Art, and it's caught on. If you don't know who Columbo is, uh, I don't blame you. It's kind of an outdated reference. In the late 1960s, there was a TV series called Columbo. That's the name of the fictional main character who's a homicide detective. He's this awkward, goofy man who people always underestimate. But in every episode, he solves the case and catches the bad guy. He's kind of like if you mixed Sherlock Holmes with Dwight Schrute. And this is the name Le Corsier chooses for himself. That should give you a pretty good idea of his personality. By 1999, he's working for the Montreal police, officially investigating the Skylight heist. He offers a million-dollar reward for information. That's a lot more than the 250000 the thieves demanded in ransom. So maybe there's also hope they'll reach out again. But it doesn't result in any leads. As the early 2000s come around and Le Corsier learns more about the case, he seems to realize the original investigators were probably right. The Skylight Heist screams organized crime. Back in 1972, investigators saw mafia involvement as a sort of black hole. But Le Corsier has spent a good chunk of his career learning how organized crime groups work, specifically how they steal, use, and hide art. If you're a regular listener of this show, you probably know organized crime groups use stolen art as a kind of currency. In our earlier episode, Bobby Donati and the Gardner Museum Heist, we talked about how criminals use paintings as collateral, payment, or even leverage to lower their prison sentences. But Canada's Colombo of Art discovers another use, too. In 2006, he's part of a big raid. Two drug dealers are arrested for cocaine trafficking. Authorities search their warehouses and find 2,500 stolen paintings. None of them are from the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, but Le Corsier learns some of these paintings had been sold through legitimate auction houses. It's like that stolen tapestry all over again. So... How is stolen art getting through these respected establishments? And maybe more importantly, how is it ending up back in the hands of criminals? Well, let's do a little thought exercise. Imagine you run a mob. Maybe that's as far-fetched as the thought of owning a Picasso painting, but it's okay. This is just theoretical. This mob is involved in all kinds of criminal ventures. So you've got a lot of money coming in millions of dollars a month. But that money is dirty. It can be traced back to criminal activity. Before you can spend it, 
it needs to be laundered so it looks like it came from a legitimate source. Now let's say your mob needs to launder tens of millions of dollars fast, and you've got a warehouse full of stolen paintings for this exact purpose. It goes like this. Some members of the mob take the art to a legitimate auction house and put it up for sale. At the same time, another mob guy is planted in the audience. He bids on the art, pushing the price further and further up until the price lands at something ridiculous, for example, $20 million. He pays the seller and gets the paintings in return. But nothing actually changes hands. The paintings and cash both still belong to the mob. Again, the goal here is not to make more money. It's to make that $20 million appear legitimate. They do lose a small percentage to the auction house as a commission, but it's worth it. Because art auctions are so insular and transactions are often kept anonymous, the money is effectively untraceable. And this is all possible because it often takes investigative agencies months to notify auction houses that pieces have been stolen. Even if authorities know, art dealers and collectors might not. Well, that's exactly what happened in the auction where Le Corsier found the tapestry. Nobody there knew it was stolen, except for him. It's possible that's also what the thieves plan to do with the paintings and artifacts stolen in the Skylight heist. But the media attention on the case might have made it difficult to get those items through an auction house quietly. In Le Corsier's eyes, it's all a matter of timing. Art can be stolen, then sold or trafficked out of the country before police even finish filing their reports. Our trustee Colombo of Art sets out to change that. Remember how he's been building up that contact list of everyone in the art world? He turns that into his secret weapon. It's called the Art Alert System. The moment Le Corsier learns a piece of art has been stolen, he beams that information out to everyone he knows. Law enforcement organizations, auction houses, art dealers, collectors, even the criminals he's arrested in the past. It works like a charm. While Interpol might take months to spread information about stolen art, Le Corsier can do it in 24 hours. Because of that, he says his art recovery rate is around 15%. Yeah, it's far from perfect, but considering the FBI's own recovery rate is between 5 and 10%, it's pretty impressive. I'd say Canada's Colombo of Art has earned his nickname. So Le Corsier knows how art theft works. He knows how organized crime groups trade art. He knows that acting quickly is the key to recovering stolen pieces, and he knows how important it is to return paintings and artifacts to museums and collections where they can be loved and appreciated by the masses. But for all this work, after years of investigating, the Corsier can't crack the skylight heist. And in 2008, when he enters retirement, the case is still unsolved. Although he's no longer actively investigating, Le Corsier keeps thinking about the heist. He gives media statements and posits theories. 
he remains pretty convinced the theft involved organized crime. Even if he's right, that doesn't necessarily answer the most pressing question. Where is all the art? Some people think the paintings might have been destroyed. Others wonder if they're hidden in the home of a mobster in Central America, where Canadian authorities have no right to search homes. The most hopeful theorists think the art could still be in Montreal, maybe stacked in a warehouse like the ones Le Corsier raided in 2006. It's hard to say if the truth will ever be found. We've just passed the 50-year anniversary of the theft, and there's been no movement in the case in decades. These days, the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts remains a cultural touchstone. It's filled with historical artifacts, modern art, contemporary pieces, and has an outdoor sculpture garden. But the institution has faced some serious challenges. The Bruegel painting that was found at the train station is no longer on display. Turns out it was misattributed. It wasn't actually painted by Jan Bruegel the Elder, but by his students. It's still a beautiful work of art, but it's not the pricey masterpiece the museum thought it was. To make matters worse, the stolen Rembrandt landscape with cottages is now estimated to be worth up to $50 million. Even if it were recovered, it would be the property of the insurance companies, since it's unlikely the museum could afford to buy it back. But even if the crime is never solved, there's still hope that the paintings could be recovered. According to former FBI agent Robert K. Whitman, stolen art is usually recovered either soon after the theft or after a generation has passed. So just because a piece has been missing for decades doesn't mean there's no chance it won't be found. In fact, now might be the perfect time for the Skylight Heist paintings to resurface. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next Monday with another cold case. For more information on the Skylight Heist, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Skylight Caper, the unsolved 1972 theft of the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts by Catherine Schofield Seskin, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Karis Allen, edited by Kate Murdoch, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. Thank you.